This episode of AHLA Speaking of Health Law is brought to you by AHLA members and donors like you. For more information, visit AmericanHealthLaw.org. Good afternoon. My name is Ross Burris. I am a healthcare litigation shareholder at Pulsinelli in the Atlanta office. I'm joined today by my colleague, Jeannie Vance, who is chair of the RAP group for AHLA. I'm going to say hello, Jeannie. Hi, everybody. We're uh, thrilled to be able to offer this to you, and we hope you'll come join us for um, additional RAP activities um, over the next AHLA year. Welcome. Thanks, Jeannie. Uh, and I should have mentioned this a moment ago, but I am one of the vice chairs for RAP and have had the uh, privilege of being one for several years. And for many of those years, I was a, a vice chair with my friend uh, and colleague, uh, Dan Hedick. And Dan is on the uh, call today as well. And he's going to be telling us about a recent Supreme Court case uh, that he argued and it came out on June 24th this year. Not the Supreme Court case that many of you are probably thinking about from that date, but but also a very important uh, decision, especially for hospitals and the healthcare um, industry. Uh, Dan, can you introduce yourself and um, say hello to everyone? Sure. Yeah. Thank you, Ross. Um, yeah, my name is Dan Hedick. I'm a partner at King and Spalding's uh, in King and Spalding's healthcare practice. I'm resident in the Washington D.C. office. Um, I've been doing Medicare reimbursement uh, work for since 2006. Um, so what's that? Uh, a long time. Anyway, I've been at King and Spalding since 2008. I came over with uh, Dennis Barry. Some old timers might remember. Uh, the name Dennis Barry. Um, he was my mentor for many years before he retired in 2015. Uh, but I came over with Dennis Barry's group from Vincent and Elkins uh, in 2008 to King and Spalding. And uh, I've, I've been there ever since. So Dan, I, I neglected to actually say the name of your case. Would you tell everyone? Sure. So it's a uh, Becerra v. Empire Health Foundation is how it's captioned in the Supreme Court. And Becerra is first because we won in the Ninth Circuit. So it was the government that had requested Supreme Court review, uh, requested cert from the Supreme Court, and was granted. Um, so it's Becerra of the Empire Health Foundation. And so for our health law friends, explain to them what the basic premise of, of this case was uh, and why we as, as hospital lawyers and, and health law professionals uh, might, might be interested in this. Yeah, so this is an, one of the ongoing uh, sagas that is the Medicare DISH uh, reimbursement uh, adjustment, that there's been a, a lot of litigation. In fact, the last Medicare reimbursement Supreme Court case was also about the Medicare DISH payment. And DISH st stands for disproportionate share. And it's a payment that hospitals that treat a disproportionate share of indigent patients get. Basically, Congress said, hey, things are a little bit more expensive for hospitals that have a lot of poor patients. So we're gonna give you a little bit, you know, we're gonna adjust your standardized payments to, to reflect that fact. And in our case in particular, the question was whether patients who have, so Medicare doesn't pay indefinitely. It pays for uh, typically up, up to 90 days of a hospital stay. Uh, and then there's, there's some lifetime reserve days that patients can tap into once. But at a certain point, patients can exhaust, can use up their hospital, the Medicare hospital benefits for a particular spell of illness. So the question in our case is when that happens, do those patients continue to be 
entitled to Medicare benefits after they've exhausted their Medicare benefits. And that's important because this dish payments, I don't wanna get too far into the details, um, but it's composed of two fractions. One is the Medicare fraction, but the other is the Medicaid fraction. And almost all of these patients, the vast majority of them anyway, once they've exhausted their Medicare benefits, so they've been in the hospital by definition a very long time, the vast majority of them then get paid by, by Medicaid. Medicaid kicks in and will take care of their hospital bills. But the Medicaid fraction categorically excludes any patient who's considered entitled to Medicare benefits. Uh, if that's not confusing enough, uh, uh, <laughs> in Kagan's uh, majority decision, actually, the one thing the majority and the dissent agreed on was how complicated the Medicare reimbursement is. Um, but because patients that are considered to be Medicare, entitled to Medicare benefits are category, categorically excluded from the Medicaid fraction, um, it tends to de decrease uh, payments to hospitals if you treat patients as still being entitled to Medicare benefits, even after they've exhausted those benefits. So was this, this particular case, was it, a, it was over a tranche, was it over a group of patients or was it over a, uh, a specific cost report? How did that work? Yeah, so there was um, a specific hospital and cost report at issue in this case for Empire uh, Health Foundation. Um, but there are probably certainly dozens, probably hundreds of hospitals appealing this same issue at various stages of the appeal process. Um, so obviously a Supreme Court decision is gonna decide, you know, some are still in front of the Provider Reimbursement Review Board, some are actually uh, in federal court. So this decision was going to, you know, decide the issue obviously by the nature of the Supreme Court uh, for everybody. So you're, you are being sent up, here, here you are Dan Haddock, reimbursement lawyer, being sent up to the Supreme Court of the United States to argue a, a extremely important Medicare reimbursement case that affects arguably, you know, hundreds if not thousands of hospitals across the United States, right? Yeah, yeah, that's, that's basically right. And you <laughs> Let me ask you this. How many Supreme Court cases had you argued before this, Dan? <laughs> um, no, this was, this was my first. Okay. Uh, and in fact, I think it might have been, I might have been the first like designated healthcare attorney, because obviously I'm a healthcare attorney. Um, to argue Supreme Court case in nearly a decade. That's, that's um, an interesting question. I remember, I wonder how many AHLA members have argued in front of the, the Supreme Court. I can't imagine it's very many. Yeah, I think, uh, I think it's a pretty rarefied crowd and, and it was, you know, really exciting. And, and I'll tell you, you know, it was, it was step by step, right? I said, I've been doing this type of work for a long time. 60% of my practice is, is litigating these issues. Um, you know, usually not in front of the Supreme Court, District Court, um, Appellate Court, et cetera. And that's how this case started. I got involved at the District Court level, actually at the oral argument phase. And, and we won at the District Court uh, oral argument. It was in Spokane, Washington. Um, the District Court judge agreed with us. What, one thing I should have mentioned, Ross, is the history on this issue. Yeah. Two other circuits had decided in the government's favor on this issue, which is part mm -hmm. of the reason why the Supreme Court granted cert because of the split. So the D.C. Circuit and the Sixth Circuit said the agency's position that even after a patient has exhausted his Medicare uh, benefits, you know, the patient is still entitled to Medicare benefits. Uh, but that's a reasonable interpretation of, of the statute. So going into the district court, we had an uphill battle, but the district court decided in our favor and the government appealed to the Ninth Circuit. 
And I did arguments um, also in Spokane uh, in front of the Ninth Circuit. Uh, this was right before the pandemic kind of broke yeah. out, which I think February of 2020. Um, and, and I think Washington State turned out to be kind of one of the, you know, the, the genesis points of this. But I didn't know that at the time. Right. Uh, another unanimous decision. Uh, all three justices agreed with us. Um, not judges, sorry. I'm getting ahead of myself with the justices. But all three judges agreed with us um, based somewhat on some unique precedent that the Ninth Circuit had. Um, so they broke with the other two circuits. The government requested en banc review. We, we fought that off. Not a single Ninth Circuit judge voted for en banc review. Great. So we were feeling, we were feeling pretty good. Um, but the government asked for a cert and you know cited the circuit split, you know, with the DC Circuit and Sixth Circuit on one side and the Ninth Circuit on the other. We obviously opposed. You know, we told the justices, "There's there's nothing to see here. You know, just a little Medicare reimbursement dispute." Um, but when the Solicitor General asks for cert, I think, think she generally get, gets it. Um, now, and, now, let me stop you for a second. So sure. you are a reimbursement lawyer. You are not a, a typically a, a in-court litigator in that, you know, you're not, and unless correct me if I got it wrong, like you're not typically in there taking the depositions. You're not typically drafting the discovery responses. You're writing the, mo- you, may, you may help on a motion for summary judgment, I guess, when it involves you know, kind of wonky reimbursement issues, but you're you're not a typical rank and file litigator, right? Yeah, well, it depends how you look at it, Ross. So not, I, I think within this field, and it is a unique uh, field under the kind of APA standard. Right. Because I do do quite a bit of litigation there, but you're right, it's not depositions, all that's settled at the agency level. So in front of the- and You provider, do a lot of like the kind of work I do where you're, you know, you, you argue with administrative agencies, you do administrative hearings, you do uh, all sorts of interesting things, uh, you know, like that, but you're not necessarily, you know, you're, you're probably not actually in the federal courtroom very often. Yeah, it's, it's a relatively rare um, uh, event that these cases make it to federal court um, when it does. And that was one of the- um, you know, I, I really appreciate the support that King and Spalding gave me of saying, you know, this was a case that I obviously was uh, very familiar with. And when it is one of my issues that I've argued, for example, in front of the PRB, you know, which is where these cases begin. Mm-hmm. Um, and at that point, it's a little bit more traditional litigation, right, with these witnesses and you can have declarations and subpoenas and all that. Um, but once the PRB decides and the administrative agency can review at that point, it becomes almost an appellate practice, even at the district court level. Right. The record is set and everything is just, you know, motions for summary judgment. There usually is an oral argument, as I said, and I kind of did the oral arguments there. So so I do do a lot of that type of litigation, but it's certainly not kind of what people, you know, cross-examining witnesses or, or, or that type of thing. It's more, um, f- frankly, it's, it's more what I enjoy, which is the... <laughs> Um, more academic, more, you know, what does the statute say? Um, Was the agency's decision supported by this, uh, by the administrative record or not, et cetera? No, I I totally get that. And that that's a lot of the area where I play as well. And I, I I'm with you. I think it's a lot more fun than than taking 37 fact witness depositions, you know, five of which you may actually use one day and the rest of which you don't want. Uh, so I, I understand that. Did, tell me this, though, like how how did you find out you're going to the Supreme Court? And, and, and legally, I think 
I, I get it. But, you know, what was that like, you know, as this, yeah. you know, to find out that you, Dan, had a regulatory lawyer minding your business, you know, deep, deep in the, uh, you know, in the Medicare regulations and manuals uh, are going to get to argue in front of the Supreme Court, something that I think every law student thinks about or dreams about for five seconds and almost none of us ever actually get to do, especially those of yeah. us in our in our special field. Uh, so tell me, what, what was that like? Yeah, it was it was a wild ride for Austin. Certainly, I, I dreamt about it. I never, never really expected it. Um, and it was, as I kind of alluded to, it was incremental, right? You get the district court, oral argument goes well, Ninth Circuit. And, but then the Supreme Court's a whole nother ballgame, obviously. I think everybody realizes that. So when the court granted cert, um, it became a question, okay, you know, who's going to argue uh, this case? Um, now that kind of what we, I thought was so unlikely um, to happen was happening. And there was kind of a multi-step process, right? The first conversation I had was, was with my client. And I said, look, you know, um, I, I know this case well. I think the arguments went well in district court, Ninth Circuit, obviously. Um, but we have other very experienced litigators. King and Spalding has, you know, a separate appellate group that all they do is, you know, arguments uh, like this with multiple former Supreme Court clerks, uh, et cetera. Um, and the conversation I had with my clients was, you know, we might want to think about whether one of these other attorneys might, might be better suited. And my client's reaction was, then we'll, you know, if you're advising us to go with another one of your partners, we would, you know, probably take your advice. But our preference is for you to do it. We know you, you did a great job. We want you to do it. So that was the first thing. Then I'm talking. That's awesome. to I mean, yeah. <laughs> what nice, nice feedback from a client to, to be appreciated and trusted like that. Yeah. And then the second conversation became with, with my firm. And with these, you know, the appellate bar partners that had helped me throughout, you know, the process uh, and voice in particular in the Ninth Circuit um, appeal, she was, she was, you know, kind of right by my side um, and, you know, discussing internally who we thought was the best candidate. And that conversation, again, kind of as you alluded to, Ross, went as, you know, as well as you could hope, I think. And, you know, the feedback I got there was. Then we listened to the Ninth Circuit argument and, and the district court. You did a great job. We think you can do this if you want to. Um, but if you don't, there's going to be extreme pressure. You're going to be scrutinized you know, to death. It's, it's a kind of a national pastime to dissect Supreme mm -hmm. Court oral arguments and, and critique them. If you don't want to do it, we're here for you and we'll, um, we'll do it for you. If you do want to do it, we'll do everything we can to prepare you, uh, you know, to knock it out of the park. So now the decision's on me, right? I have kind of the support from the client, support from the firm. You know, it's up to me. What do I want to do? And one of the conversations- No pressure, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I had a lot of conversations with Dennis Barry, my, my prior mentor uh, and others. But the one piece of advice that stuck out to me was an old colleague of mine at V&E. He said to me, so Dan, if you get a chance to bat at the World Series- you go up and bat at the World Series. You don't say, nah, I might not be ready. I'll, I'll stay here on the bench. You know, let's right. go up. Uh, and I was like, you know, I, th I think that's right. And, and I mean, it's, there's a lot of intangibles, right? I don't want to sound like um, immodest or anything, but really I thought that I could be, particularly with the right preparation, the best attorney for, for this job, given my history with the case, my relationship with the client and my prior kind of experience in, in oral advocacy. 
Um, so I kind of made the commitment to, uh, to go forward with it. I regretted it at some moments. I'll tell you in the preparation process. <laughs> tell me about um, that. Actually, I want to hear that. Tell me what, what was the first moment you had when you said, Oh crap, <laughs> this was a mistake. I should just call the, you know, the white haired partner down the hall and let that person go down and, and argue this for me. Yeah. Yeah. So there were several moments where, where I had that thought. I think maybe I, we did a ton of moots. I think at least six different moots of the oral argument with different, you know, groups of people. Um, I think probably my first moot, you know, was pretty intense. It was the first one and I kind of came out of that beat up. And I, I think that was probably one of the first times I was like, hmm. Right. <laughs> and then, um, but, but it was great. The partners, you know, they made good on what they had promised where uh, Ashley Parrish and Jeff Buckles and Ann Voigt's, uh, were kind of some of the lead partners, but then we had all sorts of uh, other partners. One of them clerked for three different Supreme Court justices, Paul Mazzina. He had clerked for Scalia. He had clerked for uh, Gorsuch, I believe. And he had clerked for Kavanaugh when Kavanaugh was on the DC circuit. Um, so I, I had such a wonderful support team and, and other, um, you know, multiple other Supreme Court clerks that were able to kind of really, um, you know, prepare me for, for what I was going to be facing. Um, you know, the argument was uh, November 29th, which was Cyber Monday. So the Monday after Thanksgiving. Wow. So I think another time I regretted was when I was like half nauseous over my turkey Thanksgiving dinner thinking. Right. <laughs> Your family's this. asking you why you're not having a second helping of mashed potatoes and all you want to do is Go and go in your room and freak out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Thinking about where I was going to be on, on Monday morning. And we had whole COVID protocols. So at, I think it was 9 a.m. Sunday, I had to report to a clinic designated by the Supreme Court to get a COVID test. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, yes. And my, my co counsel, Ann Voigt, who was flying in from California, had to do the same. So she was, I think her appointment time was slightly different from mine, but she was there at this clinic. Um, happily came back negative. What fascinated me is that if it comes back positive, you think they'd maybe reschedule or postpone or have somebody. If it came back positive, you're just supposed to argue uh, via Zoom. <laughs> so, you know, um, so COVID or no COVID, you're on. But, but it, it came back negative uh, happily. Um, so yeah, but, but one, one highlight of the prep, Ross, so those were kind of, you know, some of the, the more uh, trying moments, if you will. Right. But, um, I discovered, I went to Georgetown, I'm alum from, from Georgetown Law School, where I also got a master's in bioethics, which kind of uh, set my interest in, in health law um, off. Um, but I never really appreciated that the Georgetown has this Supreme Court Institute, which apparently preps almost or moots almost every case that appears in front of the Supreme Court, or, or at least one side of the case. Usually the, the parties fight out, fight it out to see who's going to get that, you know, remarkable uh, resource available to them. But the Solicitor General's office apparently doesn't participate. So I, I have, you know, dibs on it. Um, mm. And it was a few days, I think it was the Tuesday or Monday before Thanksgiving, usually be closer to the argument. But because of Thanksgiving, everything was a little bit, you know, off um, that we had a moot there. They have a little it's apparently it's exactly like the Supreme Court courtroom, just a little bit smaller. And they get five justices, five you know, attorneys to act as on behalf of the justices, um, Supreme, you know, experienced Supreme Court practitioners. 
but they asked me if I had a recommendation for a subject matter expert, you know, to participate on this panel. Um, and I recommended my, my mentor, Dennis Barry, um, who retired in 2015. Um, I said, you know, he'd be great. He knows this in and out, you know, he's extremely um, smart. Um, and I think he'd really get, get a kick out of it. So, so it worked out. He was, Dennis was available and, and they thought he would be a good fifth justice. Uh, so he was on the panel. So it really was one of the kind of the highlights of my career to be back at my old law school, Georgetown, a few days before a Supreme Court oral argument with my longtime mentor, Dennis Barry, coming out of retirement. It felt like something out of a, a nerdy version of Rocky, you know? He's coming right. out of retirement to help prepare his, his protege for, for the big event. Um, so that that was very cool. Did you and know was he all- was coming or did he just like appear from the curtains and you're like, oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, I knew. I helped coordinate and uh, you know, I, I put his name into the hat. Um, okay. So, so yeah, so I knew. But it was right. still. It'd be so much cool. cooler actually, right? If they just like surprised you with who they were and you were like, oh my God, Dennis Perry. You know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. Frankly, that, that might have thrown me off my game. I'd be like, oh my gosh, he's Dennis. Right, right. Years. Uh, <laughs> and your grandmother, so, you know, just like totally <laughs> random and just. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so you were telling me earlier, and, 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 you know, just for those listening at home, I had the benefit of hearing a little bit of this over a, a glass of wine at the Medicare Medicaid Institute in, in the spring. Um, but I want to hear, you know, what, what surprised you when you got to the building that morning? And Because I'm presuming you never, had you ever been before to, to the Supreme Court? Yeah. So the only time I had been was, I alluded to it uh, at the beginning of the podcast, there was that other Medicaid reimbursement case that went to the Supreme Court, also on a disproportionate share issue. It was called Alina v. Becerra. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was in 2019. And we had a lot of clients that were very interested in, in the issue. So I was there in the attorney lounge for that oral argument, which was very cool. Um, but that was, you know, being there as a spectator, I'd probably right. not say this, is very different than being there as the arguing counsel. <laughs> Absolutely. Um... Um, so tell me about that day. You, you, I mean, what what surprised you? Were you know was the bench higher than you expected? Were the chairs less comfortable? Uh, you know, what was? Tell us. You know, for those of us who uh, never had this opportunity, tell us what surprised you. Yeah. So I mean, one thing that surprised me in, in a good way um, was I think the benefit of all that preparation, having gone through the crucible. You know, the crucible before. Because folks didn't pull their punches in, in any of the various moots that we did, including the, the Georgetown one. That and as much as I was joking before about, I mean, I wasn't. I mean, I really was, you know, uh, extremely anxious at different moments of the preparation. But the day of, I'm really grateful I was able to enter that the zone that you hope to be in, which was really just kind of sitting back and taking it in. Um, you know, you wait in the attorney lounge maybe for half hour. And then 15 minutes before oral argument, they, they let you into the actual courtroom. And you know the justices aren't coming out for about 15 minutes. So I remember I was sitting there, you know, in counsel's chair, just looking around at this magnificent room and, and you know, the nine empty chairs there. And, and I, I was smiling. I had a mask on, but underneath my mask, I was smiling to myself, thinking, my goodness, you know, uh, to have this opportunity, which I'm really glad that, you know, I was able to have that kind of perspective and-, and right you know, at, at that moment. Um, one of the things, Ross, I mentioned this to you, and, and I found it, I didn't know it until a few days before oral arguments. I forget if one of my 
one of the appellate partners said, or just looking it up. But the Solicitor General's office still argues, at least, you know, the, the men. And Jonathan Bond was my opposing counsel from the Solicitor General, so not the Solicitor General herself, but somebody from her office. Um, and the men dress in tails. They show up in a, a morning coat, you know, like a tuxedo, um, which was quite, you know, quite formal. So I was wearing- you know, I would have needed that warning too. I feel like I'd have found that very distracting <laughs> if, I, if I was not informed. Uh, yeah, yeah. So I, I, I knew, and you know, everything is a little bit different for the Solicitor General. You know, there's a general attorney's, uh, the attorney's lounge that is for, you know, most attorneys, but the Solicitor General has a separate office, you know, off of the attorney's lounge. So um, the Solicitor General apparently always sits on the same side of the courtroom, whether uh, she's the respondent or, or the petitioner, it doesn't matter. So everything's a, a little bit different. Uh, certainly they have home field advantage, but despite that, you know, I think the oral argument went, I mean, this is gonna sound counterintuitive because, you know, I don't know if we ever mentioned this, but we ended up losing. Um, <laughs> Five, five to four, but the oral argument went, I think, as well as it could have. Um, you know, um, one of the interesting arguments that we had was, and it was a bit broader than a wonky Medicare reimbursement issue, was about the applicability of Chevron deference and right. whether in a particular case the agency deserved Chevron deference. There were several elements of, you know, the congressional history of Congress intervening several times to tell CMS or HHS, you know, you, you should be doing this a little bit differently, that undermine the premise that Congress meant to, you know, defer to the agency on questions specifically re related to DISH. And those arguments got traction, including from some of the justices that are typically more pro-Chevron. Justice Breyer said in oral argument, he'd have awful qualms about giving Chevron deference to the agency on in this case. And sort of my said the same thing. So the argument um, went, you know, pretty well, um, but, um, you know, the, the final outcome, and, you know, it was clear early on, so Kagan wrote the, wrote the majority decision against us, you know, in favor of HHS, and it was a very strange lineup. It was, you know, Kagan, Sotomayor, and Breyer, so you'd kind of, you know, maybe expect those three to be on the same side of an issue, generally speaking. Um, although a little bit surprising, as I said, because Sotomayor and Breyer seem to be sympathetic to our argument, at least that the agency didn't deserve deference. Um, but then they were joined by Barrett, uh, Justice Barrett and Justice Thomas. Um, mm. And then writing for the dissent was Justice Kavanaugh was, you know, agreed with our position. And, you know, the remaining justices, Gorsuch, Roberts and Alito uh, joined him. So it was a really strange and one, to be entirely honest, I didn't quite predict um, you know, trying to think of how things might shake out. Um, it was clear all along that Kagan was not on our side. Um, one of the surreal moments was kind of going toe-to-toe -to -toe, uh, with, with Kagan in the oral argument because um, obviously as her majority decision showed, she was uh, skeptical of, of the hospital's position, of, of our position. Um, but I, I thought we held our own. Um, you know, in, in responding to some of uh, those concerns, but apparently, you know, uh, it, it wasn't to be. We, we got that 5-4 adverse decision. It took right. seven months for the justices to get there. Like it was argued in November, decided end of November, decided end of June. Um, so it was an extraordinary long time. So there's some solace in knowing, one, clearly we gave the justices something to chew on since it took seven months. 
And two, you know, that it, it was it was five to four. You know, we, we really couldn't have gotten any closer, um, which is both consoling and, and a little bit frustrating. Yeah, I mean, I, I can imagine it. And, and, and you know, the interesting thing, I, I never thought about this before, but, you know, in litigation, we often always feel, well, you've got another option, right? We got another level. There's one more thing we can try, but there's nothing else to try when you've lost at the Supreme Court. Uh, it is. It takes some getting used to yeah. uh, this idea of true finality. Uh, right. actually, you can petition the, the Supreme Court to rehear a case. Uh, there you go. <laughs> I'll, um, you know, reveal ahead of time. We're not planning to file a petition to rehear. Uh, we did do a little bit of research on it and it's granted one time out of a thousand. So it's not one in 10, one in a hundred, basically one in a thousand out of 3000 requests, the court granted rehearings uh, three times. And often those were cases that were tied and, you know, the, the original decision was tied for some reason and a new justice had joined. So that could sort of granted rehearing to actually decide the case and try to say Of the uh, rehearings, how many people actually got the first decision overturned or redecided? Yeah, yeah, I bet, right. Yeah, out, out of those three out of 3,000, right. Yeah, maybe, maybe one of them is my guess. Uh, but, but, you know, one of the thousand was enough. Okay, that, we're, we're not going to go there. But interestingly, Ross, and one of the silver linings uh, in the decision is that throughout the appeal, we had an argument in the alternative, right? Um, so, and again, I, I don't want to get too wonky here, but the Medicare fraction says you include in the, the measure of indigency, indigency those who are entitled to benefits on the Part A, entitled to Medicare, and those who are entitled to SSI benefits, supplemental security income benefits, which only you know, very poor um, people qualify for. And as we just established, when it comes to entitled to Medicare benefits, the agency says whether or not Medicare pays doesn't matter. As long as you meet the eligibility criteria, you know, you, you qualify. And the Supreme Court agreed with the agency on that. Hmm. But then in the same sentence, when it comes to entitled to SSI, same word entitled, the agency says, no, only patients who, who receive SSI cash in their hands are considered entitled to SSI benefits. So if the check is even returned as undeliverable, that patient doesn't count. If the patient um, doesn't accept direct deposit, that patient doesn't count as being entitled to SSI. So in the Ninth Circuit in the District Court, we said, hey, if you decide in favor of the agency on their very broad definition of what it means to be entitled to Medicare, then you should strike down the agency's narrow definition of what it means to be entitled to SSI, because they're completely inconsistent. And in both cases, the district court and the Ninth Circuit said, we're deciding in your favor on your primary argument that, you know, this interpretation is too broad. We're not going to address your argument in the alternative. Well, now that the Supreme Court has kind of endorsed, you know, has overturned uh, the Ninth Circuit decision on, on the primary issue, we think the argument in the alternative is ripe to be decided. Um, and so we're working on a petition now upon remand, you know, Supreme Court remanded to the Ninth Circuit to say, hey, we have this, we had this argument in the alternative all along, you know, that if if this broad definition stands, then this narrow definition has to fall. Um, and, and you should hear that issue. And my understanding from people that have crunched numbers is that it might not be worth quite as much as the primary argument as you'd expect. Um, that's why it was our backup, our argument in the alternative. Um, but it's worth a substantial amount of money. If hospitals were able to include a much larger cadre of patients as being entitled to SSI benefits, 
um, that would have a significant effect, uh, positive effect on their disproportionate share payments. So that's that. That's the next fight. In uh, other words, it's not over. <laughs> it, it's not over. It's uh, never over, is it? Yeah, exactly. Um, That's fantastic, Dan. Listen, I know you don't have much time left, um, and and we just so appreciate you doing this with us today. I know we we've tried several times to get this going, and and we kept waiting on the decision. I, we've been talking about this since March, so it took us uh, took us a while to get the final. Um, you know, aside from from you know getting fitted for a morning coat for your next appearance, uh, what else are you going to? My last question to you, I guess, is going to be what What would you dif- do different next time, or just what would you do next time, even if it's the same thing you did this time? Yeah, you know, I, I, I'll say, Ross, I um, going into the argument, we knew we had our work cut out for us. You know, it was two circuit decisions to one. We knew the Supreme Court. You know, we had argued against cert, right? As I said, the government asked for cert. You know, we didn't want it. We had our Ninth Circuit win, unanimous win. Um, going into oral argument, we knew it was a tough case. I got my hopes up during oral argument because it went so well, because of, you know, yeah. particularly sort of Mother and Breyer. Kavanaugh was playing on our side. Just Chief Justice Roberts was playing on our side. And I had started to think, hey, you know, we have a good chance of, of winning this. I think that's every litigator, right? Like you get caught up in your arguments, you're feeling, you're feeling strong, you're feeling good. And, and you're like, how yeah. can I do this? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And again, you know, that matchup, I, I, you can imagine, I went through it. So how does the government get to five votes? Okay. We get Kagan, Sotomayor, maybe she seemed on our side, but potentially, but, you know, Barrett and Thomas both going on that side, you know, I didn't predict it. So I think if I had it to do over again, I would, you know, we always knew don't count your chickens before they hatch. And, and I knew that. And, and that helped because, you know, I, I knew we had opposition. I knew Kagan, you know, and Kagan's a very powerful uh, person to have against you because as I understand it, and as you know, <laughs> you know, the facts bear out, she's very good at rallying support for her. Former Solicitor General herself, right? Wasn't she? Yes, exactly. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, Harvard Dean. Um, so, so, you know, there's, I suppose there's no shame in, in going down, you know, in, in front of Kagan. But I think if I had different, I would have tempered my expectations a little bit more, not got my hopes up uh, quite so high. But right. again, what a remarkable experience. And I'm really glad going back to where we started of, you know, the fact that I decided to do this. Uh, there were moments of doubt. There were moments, as we said, where I was like, you know, what have I gotten myself into? Um, but at the end of the day, what a remarkable uh, experience once in a lifetime. And, and I do think, you know, despite losing one other thing, I'll say the support, I got a lot of nice congratulatory emails after all arguments because folks thought about, well, the client was very pleased. I think I almost got more after the adverse decision, folks writing to me from outside my law firm, other attorneys saying, you did a great job. You should hold your head up. You know, it didn't go your way, but, um, and that, that really meant a lot, you know, even after getting, you know, that narrow loss, still knowing, you know, that, that I had that support was really powerful. Well, I, I'm proud of you and I'm proud to know you and have worked with you. And I think it's, it's, it's tremendous what you did for hospitals and, uh, and, and the experience you got making all us health lawyers look good in, in a very important place. So um, thank, well, you. thank you. And, uh, and thank you for joining us today. Jeannie, do you have anything to share? Thanks so much, Dan. We really appreciate it. And um, we certainly are proud of one of our former RAP vice chairs. So uh, way to go. We'll claim you. We'll definitely claim you for this one. (laughs) Thank you.
Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe to AHLA Speaking of Health Law wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more about AHLA and the educational resources available to the health law community, visit AmericanHealthLaw.org.